Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast slash podcast. Oh, I've got a treat in store for you today. Everything from things to make you laugh to things that will inspire you to things that may have you shaking in fear in the corner. Yeah, I'm saving that one for last. We'll talk about how it's not global warming we have to watch out for. It's global cooling. Apparently the next ice age is on the way. Polar shift, the whole nine yards. Of course, I'm going to leave the heavy lifting for my friend Ralph DeLugas, who uh, covers topics like these on his show, Truth is Stranger Than Fiction, every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Mountain Time on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. But I do have some fun stuff here. So I was reading about uh, a friend's experience with a skunk, and it brought back so many memories, some good, some bad, but I just wanted to, to mention this because... I don't know how many people in the course of their day-to-day lives have had a close encounter with a skunk. Now, you don't have to get sprayed in order to to have a close encounter, for it to really count. But my friend, who lives in southern Idaho, had written that she almost died of fright yesterday morning. She was out trying to move a wheel line in a field to water a pasture, and apparently the motor ran out of gas. So she walked about 200 yards or so through the edge of a cornfield to get to the head gate so she could turn it down. Well, she's standing next to the head gate, texting her husband to let him know her predicament when there's a little rustle in the bushes about six feet away. And she's texting, so her attention's divided, right? And she looks, and this cute little house cat comes out. All right, well, she keeps texting. Then she looks down and realizes the biggest freaking skunk is legit about to rub her leg. (laughs) It came up to her just like a cat. And she says, my heart jumped into my throat as I backed away, then whirled around around and ran as fast as a fat girl can. Her words. She says, that was almost the worst uh, top five days of my life. (laughs) Uh, I I only laugh because I've been there myself. There was a time when I was living in St. George, Utah, where uh, we were a one-car family. So with three little kids... We had a minivan. I know. I know. That's pretty cool. Sounds like I'm bragging. Probably I am. But uh, I I only lived a short distance from work, but it was up and over a hill. So I would just, I'd walk to work at uh, about five o'clock every morning. And uh, and it was great exercise. I actually lost a pretty fair amount of weight going up and over that hill. The problem is at the top of that hill, there were no streetlights. So there was this nice big blind curve that I'd have to walk around and then down the hill to the radio station. And as I'm walking along one time, you know, my eyes are starting to adjust to the dark. I've left the place where there's street lights, and I'm in the dark corner there. And, and I see a mama cat and her little kittens out there playing around on the, the lawn. And I'm thinking, how cute. Boy, they're brave. They don't even want to run away. And then I got about five steps closer and realized that's a skunk and all her little skunklets. And because she was with her little skunks, uh, Mama was not happy to see me, the intruder, walking up on him. And and she came after me. I know it's probably my imagination that just fills in the blanks and makes it sound like this. But I swear, I ran as fast as I could. And, and it sounded like, for all the world, like there was this skunk <laughs> hissing and, and chasing after me. 
And then I got paranoid. So paranoid, I had to buy a little flashlight to carry with me because a couple of days later, I'm walking over the hill and I'm really, you know, oh man, I don't want to run into these skunks again. And so I'm actually walking in the road. I know, dangerous on a dark road, you know, early in the morning, could have got run over. But instead, I sat there and I was, I was trying to, uh, to figure out what is that little shape I see in the gutter in front of me? And I'm thinking, Brian, your mind is playing tricks on you. You're just being paranoid. But I'm thinking, I don't know. What if that's a skunk? I go walking up on it thinking that there's no way. There's no possible way I'm going to run into two skunks just like that. Sure enough, I get, to, I get within about 10 feet of it and I realize it is a skunk. And it's just laying there trying to lay low and, and, and hopefully avoid notice by me. So off I go running again. This one didn't chase me, but... Let me just put it this way. My my fear of skunks, I think, is well-founded. I've never been sprayed by one, but I'm very much of the idea that uh, in a contest between a skunk and me, <laughs> the skunk wins. Uh, so I just had to laugh as I, as I read my friend's account. You know, it's just uh, about a week and a half ago, my father-in-law convinced me to go fishing in southern Idaho. And he, he lives on a nice farm. They do have a family of skunks that lives out behind one of their barns. And, uh, boy, we got up early in the morning, went out to, to get in the car. Uh, we opened the garage and backed his little truck out. And, whew, that skunk had just, I mean, it was just chokingly strong. So we looked all around, made sure, man, skunk wasn't underneath the truck or something. Nope. We jumped in, went fishing. We had to stop and grab a fishing license at Walmart. Funny thing is, we come out of the store, open the door of the truck to get in, and it's just, pow, there's that smell hitting us right in the nose everywhere we went for the rest of the day. You'd get into his truck and you'd smell skunk. Now, the smell didn't stick to us, at least not that we know of. Um, it, it wasn't on the outside of the truck, but I don't know. Well, I think I've, I think I've run the gamut here of, as far as skunk stories, but um, you'll see some pretty funny stuff. When you see people encounter a skunk, and above all, you will learn you are much faster on your feet than you ever thought you would be. You just need the right motivation. And the sight of a polecat coming at you <laughs> or suddenly appearing nearby, that's very good motivation to find out just how fast you can actually run. All right. Speaking of skunks, this has nothing to do with skunks. Piers Morgan. You thought I was going to call him names. No, not exactly. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of Piers Morgan. Just because uh, for so often or for so long when he was on CNN, he seemed like to, he was really... Um, the guy who was always coming out in favor of more and more and more gun control. That's a place where I just can't agree with him. But I have to say, he knocks it out of the park with this statement. He talks about how populism is rising because, in his words, liberals have become unbearable. He says, in my core, I'm probably more liberal than not, although fundamentally I see myself as a journalist and I like to see both sides. And he says, I can argue both sides of all these things. But he says, liberals have become utterly, pathetically illiberal. And it's a massive problem. He says, what's the point of calling yourself a liberal if you don't allow everyone else to have a different view? This snowflake culture that we now operate in is the, the victimhood culture the, that everyone has to think in a certain way, behave a certain way. Everyone has to have a bleeding heart and tell you 20 things that are wrong with them. He says, I just think it's all completely skewed to an environment where everyone is offended by everything and no one is allowed to say a joke. 
Now, listen to this. Listen to what he points out here. And this is where I think he just nails it. He says, if you said a joke 10 years ago that offended somebody, you can never host the Oscars. So now there's no host for anything. The Emmys now just said they're not going to host either. So hosts have gone and soon every award winner will go because everyone's a human being and we're all flawed and no one can win awards anymore because there will be no platform before they even get on the podium. So then no hosts, no stars, then no one can make any movies because we're all flawed. So no actors. So suddenly, where are we? He says the liberals get what they want, which is a humorless void where nothing happens. No one dares do anything or laugh about anything or behave in any way that doesn't suit their rigid way of leaving, of leading a life. No, thanks. So what's happening around the world? Piers Morgan says populism is rising because people are fed up with the PC culture. They're fed up with snowflakery. They're fed up with people being offended by everything. And they're gravitating towards forceful personalities who go, this is all nonsense. Which, by the way, he says it is in most cases. So why are we surprised? He says, I'm not surprised. It doesn't mean to say I agree with all of it, but it means I can understand it. And I I understand why the liberals, my side, if you like, are getting it so horribly wrong. They just want to tell people not just how to lead their lives, but if you don't lead it the way I tell you, it's a kind of fascism. If you don't lead, lead the life the way I'm telling you to, then I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to scream at you. I'm going to abuse you. I'm going to get you fired from your job. I'm going to get you hounded by your family and friends. I'm going to make you the most disgusting human being in the world. Now, if you're like me, you probably are wondering, wait, did Piers Morgan really say this? And he did. Yeah, there's, there's video of, of him saying, it. I don't believe it's a deep fake, but I think he's calling it pretty straight here. And while I'm not suggesting that populism or at least, you know, uh, returning railing for railing is the way to go, I too certainly understand why people get fed up with somebody dictating to them and always trying to, to manipulate them through fear and through guilt. And it really does feel like in some ways that, that uh, sense, that need for control is escalating. And this doesn't make me a water carrier for Donald J. Trump, but uh, you want to talk about uh, a forceful personality who is willing to stand up and say, this is nonsense. That's your guy. Yeah, there may be some other baggage that comes along with him, but it is kind of refreshing to hear someone say, I'm not going to buy into this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. So what do you think uh, about Piers Morgan saying populism is on the rise because the left is getting incorrigible? It's getting more desperate. I don't find this encouraging, by the way. For, so if, if anybody's detecting well, that little note of glee I hear in your voice. No, not really. I don't think we should be sitting around a la, you know, um, NPR politely and quietly agreeing with each other. Yes, yes, that's that's how I feel as well. Um, I think there's plenty of room for disagreement, even even sometimes vigorous or vigorous or spirited disagreement. But there's just no room for that anymore. We have people who are 
to the point of they, they will bring physical violence if they perceive that you are not marching in lockstep with them, waving their flag enthusiastically enough. Now, look, that can that can apply to more than just the left. But it seems like the left is the one are the ones who are doubling down on it the hardest right now. The guy up in Montana who fractured the kid's skull because he threw him to the ground after the kid refused to stand for the national anthem. Okay, that's that's an example of what it looks like from the right hand side of you got to think like me or else. But you got to say this. You have to use my pronouns. You have to use this and that. It just there there are so many delusions that we are expected to buy into. Actually, Jeff Minnick has a terrific article on intellectualtakeout.org. Very timely for this. At least as far as it comes down to the language we use. And, and I think this is a good premise to begin with. If you control a person's language, you control the words they use, that influences the thoughts that they are allowed to think, and that in turn influences their behavior. I mean, does that sound too conspiratorial? Does, do, I, do I look like the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia trying to explain how the conspiracy all connects back here? Well, listen to what Minnick has to say. Jeff Minnick says, language matters. He says, let's start with some quotes from one of the masters of the English language, George Orwell. From his politics in the English language, quote, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidarity to pure wind, or solidity, rather, to pure wind. And again, Orwell said, but if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. From 1984, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And again from 1984, there was truth and there was untruth, and if you clung to the truth even against the whole world, you were not mad. Okay, Minnick says enough. Recently, an article from a gender studies journal affiliated with New York University claimed that dairy cows are forcibly impregnated or raped in order to constantly produce milk for humans to consume. <sighs> I know. I, I want to say, really, somebody's got to be making this up. Seriously? Rape? Jeff says, let's ask a few questions about the use of language here. Can cows give consent to impregnation? Can cows be raped? How does the word forcibly work in such a context? And the answer is only by twisting the language. Some males decide they are women. They take steroids, undergo surgeries, wear women's clothing. He says in just a few years, our laws and our society in general have accepted these gender migrations as valid. We even allow transgenders to compete in women's sports. In short, we accept or pretend to accept the proposition that Joe can become Sally. Except for some who still have eyes to see. In, the, in an interview on feminism and transgenderism, feminist professor and writer Camille Paglia has this to say about the transgendered. Quote, it is certainly ironic how liberals who posture as defenders of science when it comes to global warming flee all reference to biology when it comes to gender, she says the cold biological truth is that sex changes are impossible. Every single cell of the human body, except for blood, remains coated with one's birth gender for life. End quote. Now, back to George Orwell. There was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. That explains why Paglia in her writings and interviews sounds sane compared to many other progressives. 
Now, Jeff Minnick says some today believe that abortion should be an option up to the moment of birth. And because of this, they claim that the fetus has no right to life until separation from the mother. Yet these same people don't blink when they say to a pregnant woman, when's your baby due? Why don't they say, when is your fetus due? Or to be more precise, when does your fetus become a human being? To paraphrase Orwell, thought corrupts language and language corrupts thought. And on and on it goes. Jeff Minnick says, if all whites are racists, then what is the definition of racism? If we believe in free speech but ban speakers from our universities, or riot if they appear, then what is free speech? If we believe in freedom of religion but then redefine the word as did the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in 2016, the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom are nothing but code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, then what does our Bill of Rights mean when it guarantees freedom of religion? Minnick says politicians have undermined the language for decades. They call it a police action if it's really a war. An investment in America translates to more taxes and more debt. Free education and free health care means picking up the tab for some citizens while making slaves of others. Illegal aliens become undocumented immigrants. Enhanced interrogation is code for torture. Collateral damage stands for the killing of civilians during wartime. Progressive politician sounds wonderful. Who's against real progress? But it actually refers to politicos looking for more power and more control over their fellow citizens. Of course, Westerners are amateurs in doublespeak when compared to the Chinese communists. Here's just one example. Mass protests have erupted in Hong Kong this summer against the Chinese government. Now, the spark for these protests was China's demand that certain criminals be tried and imprisoned on the mainland thereby breaking an agreement made between China and Hong Kong 20 years ago. So the Chinese are now labeling many of these protesters terrorists. That label gives them the legal right to intervene directly in Hong Kong, and they've stationed troops near Hong Kong's border in the event they need to deal with these, quote, terrorists. When protesters become terrorists, when we corrupt thinking and language, When we can no longer agree on even fundamental definitions for words such as man, woman, marriage, and baby, then we can be certain that more abstract concepts like justice, liberty, the right to speak truth, the dignity of the human person are in grave jeopardy of being twisted into unrecognizable doublespeak. So Jeff Minnick says, let's visit George Orwell one more time. In this dialogue from 1984, O'Brien is torturing Winston Smith, trying to convince him that whatever the party holds to be truth is truth. O'Brien holds up four fingers, but wants Winston to see five. From the book, quote, you are a slow learner, Winston, said O'Brien gently. How can I help it? He blubbered. How can I help but see what is in front of my eyes? Two and two are four. Sometimes, Winston. Sometimes they are five. Sometimes they are three. Sometimes they are all of them at once. You must try harder. It is not easy to become sane. And as Jeff Minnick concludes far too often today, two plus two equals five. Or at the very least, we're expected to play along as if it did. So here's the question I have for you. I assume that you're a person who places some degree of value on your personal autonomy and maybe on the idea of personal conscience, personal liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. 
how can you make a principled stand in the face of a world where most of the systems that presume to rule us have been co-opted and have become enforcers at some level of this alternate reality where two plus two equals five. Maybe we can touch on this in the next segment, but I would really be open for any answers as to how do you do that without responding in kind when someone wants to get violent with you because you don't see things my way, fascist. All right, we'll take a quick break. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service here. So let's uh, let's just explore this for a moment. Let's take a moment here to talk about how can you be a person who is truly autonomous stands for you what you believe in without becoming one of these offensive i'm offended by everything i must assert myself and get in your face over it kind of individuals because let's face it there there are there are plenty of people out there who are drawing attention to themselves or at least uh, playing the role of the victim for the sake of gaining power over other people which is kind of sad because, look, some of these people have legitimate pain and, and legitimate trauma that has happened somewhere. But when it turns to the need to control people, it's ugly. And, and it makes them become a caricature of, of who they really are. It also makes them see other people as mere caricatures. You know, well, I can see that you are just a white male. So therefore, because of your privilege, I don't have to hear anything you have to say. It's a rigged game. And it's supposed to be because it's about manipulating people and and controlling their behavior through controlling their thoughts by controlling their words. And you get the picture. So the question I have, and unfortunately, I will not be able to take calls, so I'm not going to give the phone number here. But uh, the question I have is, how do you stand for and assert your rights without turning into a little totalitarian yourself? I don't know if I can answer it for everybody. I will tell you what what I have perceived has has worked for me so far. Knock on wood. So far, I haven't angered the wrong people and been doxxed or otherwise, you know, relegated to public enemy number one. But first and foremost, I try to keep in mind that every person that I encounter, whether pleasant or unpleasant, whether decent or indecent, I still remind myself that that's a child of God. No matter what they're doing, no matter how they may be, you know, if they're if they're coming after me, then, yep, they're still a child of God. And what that means to me is my creator loves them every bit as much as he loves me. And so that doesn't mean I have to just submit and be a doormat. But it does mean that I have a duty not to bring 
more anger or more pain into a situation where there already is some pain. They wouldn't be acting like this if everything was going great, if they were happy in their lives. I know, armchair psychologist, maybe I'm missing a bunch of stuff, but that's, to me, that makes sense. People who so desperately need to control other people typically aren't happy with themselves or or in their own lives. And that's just one of the ways that I think it manifests itself as well. You know, I'm a victim, so you have to do what I say. You have to feel bad about yourself, and I will tell you what you are able to do and what you're not allowed to do. So I start with treat everybody with respect. Whether they deserve it or not, treat them with respect. Treat them with the same respect that I would the, that I would, if, would want to be treated with myself. It's, it's just the golden rule, okay? That plain and simple. Now, having said that, I don't believe that treating someone with respects means that you have essentially allowed yourself to be conscripted into somebody else's fantasy. For instance, if someone is saying, well, you know, what was the statistic I saw the other day? And it's I, I don't know if this is just somebody stirring trouble on, on, you know, social media or what. But the statistic was something like 98 percent of straight men say they would not date a trans woman. This is because of hate. And I was like, really? I mean, beyond that uh, larger perspective of how, hey, everybody needs to be treated with respect and so forth. I'm sorry, but if if a guy who identifies, if a guy is straight and we're talking about a trans woman, what we're talking about is a biological male who is either transitioning or identifies and tries to live as a woman. But the bottom line is, of course, he's not going to want to date another guy, even if that guy looks surprisingly feminine, which which rarely is the case. But to sit there and call it hate, well, that's just a product of hate and transphobia. Oh, a phobia. Now, again, I'm not a psychologist, but my understanding is phobias refer to irrational fears. I have arachnophobia. And it's true. I have a, I have a very irrational fear of spiders. To the point that if a spider crawls on me, you'll be amazed at the speed with which this old fat guy can move. But for a person to simply have a sense of reality to where, look, you may be a nice person and everything, but I'm not interested in striking up a romantic relationship with someone who, sorry, I'm trying to be tactful here, with someone who is is of the same gender as me, no matter what they identify as. If they were born with male parts, then I think it's perfectly reasonable for a male, especially a straight male, to say, nope, that's not what I'm attracted to. Now, that's not to suggest that, therefore, you should also call them names, you should make them feel bad, or, you know, call them to repentance. I'm saying we should still show the the exact love and respect we would want to receive in return. But I don't think that means you have to buy into and and otherwise, you know, enable another person. It's asking a bit much. And so to sit there and portray that as well, that's just that's just hatred. No, it, it's something far worse than hatred, at least to to the progressive mindset. It's 
normality. It's recognizing that some things are within the bounds of normalcy and some things are not. And you can't fake out everybody indefinitely. I mean, come on, even little kids instinctively kind of, there's just something that's not quite right there. They're not trying to be judgmental. They're not trying to be cruel. It's just that once upon a time, we had a recognition of, look, this falls within the bounds of what is natural and normal, and this does not. And once upon a time, we actually had the decency to keep those kind of subjects private. If a person struggled with same-sex attraction or with some other form of, of deviant behavior, it was something that they largely kept to themselves. It wasn't brought out and celebrated as well. This is Everybody has to appreciate this. Everybody has to treat me as special because of this. But that's where we are today. And I think the first step that any one of us has to do is believe enough in ourselves that we're willing to take a stand to speak truth, even when it's unpopular to do so. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be, you know, Alex Jones. You don't have to speak truth in a gravelly, rash voice that's, you know, essentially thumping people in the chest and telling them you have to believe this. And by the way, I don't mean to be cruel to to Alex Jones. I'm just saying that bombastic style is a huge turnoff for a lot of people. I think it takes away from credibility. And there's some cases where I think he's actually been right. But it's hard to tell, you know, when he's all worked up and, you know, frothing at the mouth. I think we can politely but firmly refuse to play along with the fantasy we're being conscripted into while at the same time showing people the requisite respect and value that they have as a human being. But you see what the common denominator here is in most of these conflicts. It comes from a desire to control people. So if I'm treating somebody with respect, it's not because I want to control them and I want to make them stop pretending, you know, the guy in the dress. I want to make him stop wearing a dress and thinking he's a woman. That's really not my place to tell him what he ought to be or to fix his problem as I may see it. As I understand it, my my moral duty is first and foremost to treat that person like a child of God. To show them the love and respect that God would show them if he were standing there in my shoes. Now, I don't have the wisdom of God, and I don't have the omniscience and, and, and the pure love that God has. But I'm trying to develop that capacity to see other people as God sees them. And to me, that is the recipe for how to, to treat others in a way that, uh, that, that focuses on the best aspects of who they are. That brings out the expectations, not of you will have to toe the line in this way to please me, but just to to show them the value that they have and to love them without condition and let the chips fall where they may. Now, sometimes you may have to say no. Sometimes someone's going to escalate it and want to turn it into a really, you know, full blown, knock down, drag out argument. If that's the case. So be it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with simply saying, you know what? I'm going to walk away from this because this feels more like a fight than it does a discussion. 
And when you do that, you got to have the courage to keep on walking, <laughs> not to not to uh, have a, that urge to just get in one last shot. Sometimes that can be tough. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, I have another article I want to share with you. This is a commentary from Thomas Knapp. And it has to do with nuance in politics and public policy. Actually, the title is Nuance in Politics and Public Policy? No thanks. And he says, in 2004, Democratic presidential nominee John Kerry called his ever-shifting position on the war in Iraq nuanced as a way of explaining why he was for it before he was against it and why his prescriptions for its future kept changing. Knapp says nuance pops up frequently in debates on politics and public policy almost always as an excuse for either non-specificity on a current position or flip-flopping from a past position. Of all the words in the political lexicon, he says none makes for a brighter neon do not trust sign than nuance. Now, according to WordNet, nuance is a subtle difference in meaning or opinion or attitude. And here Thomas Knapp says, nuance is a wonderful characteristic in painting, literature, music, and the other arts. In political philosophy and public policy, it's a cheat mechanism used for the purpose of creating unwarranted wiggle room. Define your terms, you will permit me again to say, wrote Voltaire, or we shall never understand one another. That's the whole point of resorting to nuance in in political and policy discussions. The nuanced advocate or candidate doesn't want to be understood, or at least doesn't want to be understood clearly. He's trying to create a loophole through which he can escape his position when that position becomes inconvenient. Nuance is the excuse of the civil libertarian who's all for free speech until someone says something she doesn't like, at which point we learn that hate speech isn't free speech. It's the talking point of the pro-gun rights politician who announces that a 30-round magazine is too large and must be banned, but that his views on guns haven't changed. And yes, it's the plea from the formerly anti-war politician who votes to invade Iraq and then wants to be treated as the anti-war candidate. What is not is a desirable quality in politics and public policy. Thomas Knapp says from our political candidates, we deserve clear statements of principle and position, not nuanced attempts to avoid declaring any principles or positions at all, which they might later be held to. If a politician changes her mind, we deserve to know and to know why, rather than just being told she hasn't and that we don't get the nuance. From our laws and proposals for laws, we deserve specificity. We're expected to abide by those laws. Letting cops, prosecutors, judges, and bureaucrats who implement and force them, and enforce them rather, write post-passage nuance into them, is letting them make up the law as they go, and leaving ourselves at their nuanced mercy. So he says, regardless of anyone's, of one's position on any given issue, it's important to define our terms and then either stick to them or admit that we've abandoned them. In politics and public policy, nuance, he says, is where truth goes to die. I thought that was a really helpful kick in the seat of the pants. Again, from Thomas L. Knapp, I picked this up off of everything-voluntary.com. Marvelous stuff. Okay, here's a loaded question for you. 
The headline on the uh, mirror out of the UK says scientists develop blood tests that predicts whether you'll die in the next 10 years. Here's my question. Would you want to know? Apparently, scientists from the Max Planck Institute for Biology of Aging have developed a new blood test that can predict whether you'll die within the next 10 years. But would you want to know exactly when you'll die? You know, yesterday on Joe Carey's show, we were talking about uh, cloning of cats and how you know that 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 effort isn't going to stop there. I mean, genetic science is progressing in such a way that um, if you haven't seen the movie Gattaca, that might be worth taking a look at. Gattaca is one of those uh, societies. It's it's dystopian, to put it mildly, but um, the, the show starts with the birth of the protagonist. And immediately upon his birth, they prick his heel, take a little drop of blood, and 20 seconds after this baby is born, they already know what he will die from and at what age, because that's how refined genetics have become. And essentially, if you are, if you're not genetically perfect and parents, you know, they, they go to doctors and they, they basically get designer kids. Well, we want our kid to have blue eyes. We want, we want her to have blonde hair and we want her to have, uh, you know, a ballerina's physique or whatever the case may be. But if you're one of what they call the God babies, in other words, you, you weren't uh, genetically edited in a laboratory Mom and dad created you and just kind of rolled the dice with whatever genetic defects might be there. The bottom line is you're defective. And in that society, in Gattaca, the defective people are the ones who, well, take out the trash and mop the floors. It's very much a ticket to second class citizenship. Now, Keep in mind, that's just a, that's just a fantasy, but the, I'll never forget the, the chilling feeling of looking at that as, as the show starts and this baby is born and the narrator says 10 seconds after he's born, we know exactly what this person will die of and at what age. And now I'm reading an article saying scientists actually have come up with a blood test that can predict whether you'll die within the next 10 years. Apparently, this test relies on biomarkers in the blood linked to various factors that appear to affect your risk of death. Now, to develop this test, the researchers analyzed 44,168 participants between 18 and 109 years of age, 5,512 of whom died during follow-up. And an analysis of the patient's blood revealed 14 biomarkers that were associated with an increased risk of death. And this included things like immunity, circulating fat, inflammation, glucose control. But what it suggests is that in the future, a sample of your blood could be analyzed for the presence of these biomarkers to indicate when you'll die. In the study published in Nature Communications, the researchers led by Joris Deline explained, we subsequently show that the prediction accuracy of 5 and 10 year mortality based on a model containing the identified biomarkers and sex is better than that of a model containing conventional risk factors for mortality. Now, the researchers highlight that further research is needed before a clinical test is available, and this is backed up by experts not involved in the study. 
Dr. Amanda Heslegrave, a researcher at the UK Dementia Research Institute, says whilst this study shows that this type of profiling can be useful, they do point out importantly that it would need further work to develop a score at the individual level that could be used in real life situations. She says we'd need to see validation to ensure repeatability in different labs, production of reference samples to test this on an ongoing basis, work to make the individual score possible, validation in other cohorts, and validation of all components of the panel. So she says it's an exciting step, but it's not ready yet. Interesting. I don't think I'd want to know. Would you want to know? Maybe, okay, so I'm I'm obviously just reading my own bias into this, and, and maybe others would see this entirely different, but I can't help but think that if I took that blood test and it said, yeah, definitely, dude, in the next 10 years, your life is going to be done. I'm pretty sure that uh, that would alter the way that I live my life. Now, maybe I need to. <laughs> a few less cheeseburgers, a little more moving around, probably not a bad thing. On the other hand, if I knew, well, you know, it looks like I've only got a limited amount of time, maybe I would throw caution to the wind. Maybe that 20,000 calorie a day diet wouldn't be such a bad idea after all. Now, probably something more like I might take risks that I wouldn't otherwise. I'd go hang gliding. I'd go bungee jumping. I'd, uh, you know, do some cliff diving down in Acapulco, whatever. It is fascinating that this kind of information is is becoming more and more commonplace. And it raises with it some really interesting ethical questions. I think one of the things that Joe brought up was, well, you know, are, are you ready to, to, the, to see the point where genetic engineering and genetic splicing or editing becomes commonplace and people start living forever? I would think the very wealthy would be all over this if this were the case. I don't know, maybe I've seen one too many Hollywood movies. That's that's possibly <laughs> what's going on, but it just seems like we're we're venturing into some very interesting and and potentially dangerous territory when we start tampering with life itself. Whether it's with the creation of life or whether it's with prolonging life. Don't get me wrong. I would love to be healthy and, you know, live to a ripe ripe old age. But sometimes I wonder if there's a point where we're going to run a thwart of, or run, run a rye rather, of natural laws. Okay, deep thoughts to go with your bowl of oatmeal. We'll be back. Hour two of Loving Liberty on the way after this. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.